0: Well, let's open up to the book of Ephesians. Hopefully you brought your Bible and invite you to get the handout there that's in your bulletin as we keep going through the book of Ephesians together about a section at a time or a truth at a time or a paragraph at a time, tracing Paul's argument and his theme through this great book, and he's just spent a chapter, and now we got into chapter two, uh, talking about salvation, the greatness of salvation, and the emphasis so far from the Apostle Paul is God's perspective on salvation. Um, all the great things God has done regarding salvation—he's the, the author of it, the initiator of salvation—and now we're going to get into Ephesians chapter two. We're picking up verses eight through ten, is where we left off with verse seven. So follow along with me in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through ten, where Paul continues to tell us uh, tell us about the great gift of salvation that God has given to us. And Paul says, "For by grace you have been saved through faith." And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we, that's Christians or believers, are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a great verse. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear this passage, but if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, maybe a lot of different things could come to your mind. Maybe Awana comes to your mind. That Awana ministry where you have to memorize key scriptures and truths from the Bible that's been around in the church for about 50 years, that's a great Awana verse. Or maybe you hear this passage and you think, man, this is one of the basic verses that a Christian needs to know, basic truths. And that is true. And so that's that's what I think of. Um, I I didn't become a Christian until a little later in life, and I was exposed to a lot of different religions before I became a Christian. And so having been a Christian for a while now, when I hear Ephesians 2 Uh, chapter 2 verses 8 through 10, immediately the main thing in my mind is here in this passage you have one of the distinctives of biblical Christianity. Because here in America we have all kinds of religions. We're a pluralistic society. So you may interact with all kinds of people or maybe even relatives and family members that you have would say, well, what's different about Christianity? What's so great about Christianity? What's different about the Bible? Well, here's one of the main answers right here. One of the main distinctives or differences about Christianity that sets it apart from every other religion in the world is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and that is the biblical view of salvation, of how a person gets saved and comes to know God. Because basically, ultimately, from the biblical point of view, there are only two religions in the world. There aren't 50 gazillion like people would have us believe. Ultimately, bottom line, there are only two religions in the world. And here they are. They are human achievement, which I put in the outline there. Human achievement, and then there's the other religion, the biblical religion, called divine accomplishment. That's it. Those are the only two religions in the world. I put there, the Bible asserts that every person is religious, whether they will admit it or not. That's what the Bible says. They are religious. They know that God exists, and they worship something. That's what Romans 1 tells us. The Bible also clearly teaches that apart from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, every person worships the wrong God because they are trying to reach Him and appease Him in the wrong way. And that is through their own self-effort, through human works, trying to please God and get rid of their guilt through their own works and self-effort, by the sweat of their brow. Humanity, sinful humanity, naturally tries to find God through human achievement. So that's why I'm saying it's One of just two religions. Human achievement. Uh, This is the earmark of false religion in all its various forms. The biblical alternative to finding God is through divine accomplishment. So one emphasizes what man is trying to do to get forgiven of sin. The other one emphasizes what God has already done. So that's the difference. So when you're talking to somebody and you have an opportunity to talk about religion or faith, or they ask you, so what makes Christianity different? One of the first things you should tell them is... This truth in Ephesians 2, 8-10 through 10, about how a person can get saved or come to know God. That is a distinctive. So let's look at these specifics regarding this distinctive of Christianity and that's uh, Christian salvation or how we can get forgiven of our sin and how we can come to know God and how it's different from all the other religions in the world. And I have dabbled in some other religions and I have many friends who have dabbled in other religions and I know of uh, family members and personal friends who are currently trying to practice and dabble in other religions, to, to find God, to know God, to get their sins forgiven, to answer the ultimate questions in life, and to maybe someday go to heaven when they die. And they're, they're going down the wrong road. So here's the right road. It's called divine accomplishment, what God has accomplished on our behalf so that we might know salvation. And I just came up with five basic truths that we can glean from this passage, and let's check them out. Regarding salvation. Number one, I put there is the basis of our salvation. And that is grace, or God's grace. What is the basis of true salvation? It is God's grace. And that's what the first thing that Paul reminds us of. After going on for almost a chapter and a half about salvation, he wants to remind us of where the salvation came from and why we received it. It is by God's grace. So he says, For by God's grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So he repeats himself he's being emphatic or redundant by saying it's grace and it's a gift because those are two of the same things said in two different ways regarding grace. Walt mentioned that great word grace a little earlier reminding us, reminding me that the name of our very church is Grace Bible Fellowship and grace is in the right order. It's the beginning because God is a God of grace. God is a great God and the, the God's grace flows out of the fact that He is a loving God. And again, just a basic definition of grace according to the Bible that can't be improved upon is grace is unmerited favor undeserved favor that's when god does something good to us that we didn't deserve he blessed us when we didn't earn it or deserve it as a matter of fact we probably deserved something negative a punishment a consequence but as a result of god's love he graces us by giving us something we don't deserve and the greatest thing that god ever graced us with or gave us was eternal salvation and we didn't deserve it so that is the grace of god and that's what paul's talking about here It's the grace of God. So it is unmerited or undeserved favor that Almighty God bestows on sinful people. That is grace. The Apostle Paul begins every one of his letters, 13 letters, with uh, grace to you and peace. Paul continually wants to remind the Christian uh, that they they know God by virtue of God's grace. They know Jesus because of His grace. Nothing you did, nothing I did, it was all of God's grace. By grace alone, the great reformers uh, just talked about that again and again, uh, in contrast to human achievement through human works. So Paul goes on. He says, it is the grace that has saved you. It is the gift of God. One thing that Paul's trying to do is remind people and, and argue his case that when it comes to salvation, it has nothing to do with human effort. You didn't save yourself. Everything about salvation was initiated by God, originated by God, carried through by God, and will culminate with God. It is all of God, all of grace, all undeserved. So he says, it is by grace you've been saved and salvation is a gift. A gift, by virtue of of definition, is something that somebody gives you with no strings attached, right? Or somebody gives it to you and you didn't pay for it. Or they give it to you and you don't have to pay them back. That's what a gift is. So a gift is free. So if there's any contingencies upon a gift, then it's not really a gift. And salvation, according to Paul, is a gift from God. There are conditions, and that's when we get to faith about believing the right things, but the offer and the gift and the bestowal of salvation is a gift from God, and it is by His grace. We had nothing to do with it. By the way, this gift—what is this gift that God gave us? Romans six twenty-three. We know from the passage here that Paul is talking about salvation because he says it is by grace that you have been saved. So the grace or the gift that he has given is salvation. And regarding salvation, uh, the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter six verse twenty-three, just a good verse to be reminded of regarding God's gift and His grace. He tells us that the wages of sin or what you deserve because of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. So that's the gift that we're talking about here. Can you lose your salvation? Eternal life, by the way, is the same thing as having salvation. It means the same thing as becoming a Christian. It means the same thing as being born uh, born again, knowing Jesus Christ personally. So if someone asks to ask you, are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. That means you have received eternal life. You have forgiveness of sin. It, talk, it means uh, the very moment you came to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. It's when you were regenerated. These are all synonymous, synonymous concepts. That is the gift of salvation that we're talking about. And God gives it freely. Well, can God take it back? If God gives you the gift of salvation, can He take it back? Some people say yes. Or, if God gives you the gift of salvation, can you return it to Him and you give it back? In other words, can a Christian lose their salvation? Well, many people would say, yeah, you can. If you do a bad enough sin once you become a Christian. Some people, even Christians, believe that if you commit suicide as a Christian, you lose your salvation, you go to hell. If a Christian commits suicide, they can't go to heaven. Some people believe that if you're a Christian and you turn your back on God, then you can lose your salvation. Or if you do something bad enough, God can take your salvation back but those are unbiblical concepts and i just want to share one verse with you regarding this great truth that when god gives a gift he doesn't give it back and this is romans chapter 11 verse 29 and here's paul's concluding argument for the gifts and the calling of god are irrevocable the gift of god is irrevocable irrevocable, mean, irrevocable means it's something that can't be undone it can't be taken back you can't lose it salvation is the gift of god He initiated it. He gave it to you. It is His gift. And the gift by nature is eternal life. And once you have eternal life, eternal life lasts how long? For eternity. Well, I knew somebody, they were saved for about uh, 17 years and then they weren't saved anymore. Well, then they didn't have eternal life. They had 17-year life. That's not eternal life. That's not salvation. They were not truly born again. Can't explain it. But the Bible is clear. Once you receive the gift from God, it's irrevocable. You can't lose your salvation. God isn't going to take it away. And we can't give it back. So that is the grace of God. That is the gift of God that we cannot earn. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It is a gracious gift. Well, he goes on. I want to talk about the word saved there. He says, by grace you have been saved. It is the gift of God. This is what he's talking about. This is his main point. You've been saved. He just reminded us for a chapter and a half that we have been saved, that God is a saving God. He even reminds us at the beginning of chapter 2 what we've been saved from because we talked about that. We were saved from the fact that we were spiritually dead. By the way, if you're, spirit, if you're dead, you can't save yourself, can you? If you're dead, can you give yourself CPR? I don't think so. I think that's impossible. Well, we were spiritually dead. We cannot spiritually revive ourselves. So we were saved from our sin. We were saved from spiritual death. We were saved from um, the devil, the world, and God's wrath. Those are all the things that Paul told us already. We have been saved from. We have been saved. And none of it was of our own doing. It was all by God's grace. So Paul really wants to emphasize this truth because Paul knows this is natural human thinking. Natural human thinking is to believe that we saved ourselves, that we have to save ourselves, that we have to work as hard as we can, that we have to do religious things, that we have to try to appease God on our own terms so that maybe someday He might forgive us. And when we die and stand before God as judge, hopefully our goody pile is bigger than our baddie pile. God, will you please let me in? Look at my goody pile. It's bigger than my baddy pile. That is natural for humans to think that way. And so the basis of getting forgiveness from God in the human understanding is by our own human works. And Paul says, no, that is not true. I know it's the popular view. I know it's the view the world over all throughout history, but Paul says it is the wrong view. The Apostle Paul knows this because he believed it. He practiced it. He was a self-righteous Pharisee. That's what he says about himself in Philippians. He says he was a Pharisee among the Pharisees. He was the top dog Pharisee. So he spent many years of his life trying to save himself, scrupulously obeying the Old Testament law, all 666 laws trying to follow all to the last detail and all of that minutia to the best that he possibly could. And then he came to realize as he was convicted by Jesus Christ, he can't do it, he can't save himself. As a matter of fact, all those uh, deeds he was trying to do throughout his life to save his life, according to the book of Isaiah, was like filthy rags. Our good works that we try to do to please God are filthy rags. They do not please God. We can't please Him on our own terms as sinners. So, very important truth. But regarding the word saved, because you have been saved, Christian, this is the good news. The word saved in the New Testament simply means to be rescued or delivered. It's the basic meaning. It's used dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament, the word for saved. Now, it's kind of interesting. There's a development regarding salvation in the Old Testament, And then as we come into the New Testament, in the Old Testament, the word salvation many times had to do with national salvation, corporate salvation, as God was working with the nation of Israel, saving them. As a matter of fact, the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament was when God delivered two million Jews out of slavery from Egypt and brought them into the the Promised Land. That was the epitome of a saving God on a corporate, national level. That was the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament. And actually, that was supposed to be a picture of what Christ was going to do on an individual level when He came to save people from their sins. So, saved, deliverance, and that's when God is reaching out to sinners to save them and deliver them. So, in the Old Testament, the emphasis was on a national, Israel, corporate way, wide scale, but in the New Testament... The emphasis on the word for salvation is on a personal and individual level. Jesus came primarily in this world to save sinners, individual sinners from their sin. And if you've got your Bible, look at Matthew chapter 1. I want to highlight a couple of verses out of the Gospels to show this is the very reason why Jesus came into this world. Why did Jesus come into this world? Every year around Easter, without exception, you will have Time Magazine, Uh, World and News Report, uh, CNN, and a couple others, they will do a feature on Jesus because it's Easter time. And then usually they'll have some experts get up there and tell us who Jesus was and why he came. And inevitably every year, perennially, they give the wrong answers. And they emphasize that Jesus came uh, as a philosopher, as a religious sage, as a good man, uh, and on and on they go. He was a philanthropist. He was an economist. He was a political leader. He this and that. On it, and they always get it wrong because the Bible is very clear as to why Jesus came. His mission was very narrow, but it's very clearly stated in Scripture. So, I'll share a couple of verses. Why did Jesus come into the world? Matthew chapter one. This is the announcement of the birth of Jesus to his parents, to Mary. The angel said, "You're going to have a son." Talking to Joseph. Mary is going to have a baby. And it's going to be a special baby. It's going to be the Savior. Verse 21, And she will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus. The Greek word Jesus means Savior. came from the Old Testament word Joshua, Yeshua, God saves. This baby is going to be named God saves, which was to tell them this baby is going to be God who comes to save, because he goes on to explain His name. Jesus, for it is He who will save His people from their sins. The Bible is very clear that only God can save people from their sins. This says that Jesus will save His people from their sins, which is telling us Jesus is God in a human body. But there's the mission. Jesus will come to save His people from sins. Why did Jesus come into the world? To save sinners. Look at Luke 19. Again, just reiterating why Jesus came into the world. That's, again, just the the movie The Passion of Christ because it was a visual presentation without explanation. You saw how Jesus died, but you are never told in the film why Jesus died. The meaning of Jesus' death is never explained. So you literally, I know people who are not Christians, who saw the movie, were emotionally... Uh, affected by it, but they didn't become Christians. As a matter of fact, they're, in, they're not any closer to becoming Christians as a result of seeing the movie. And the main reason is, is because the meaning needs to be explained of why Jesus died. Because some of them walked away thinking, oh, that poor Jesus, he was a helpless victim who just got brutalized. And am like, well, actually, you missed the point. But actually, you didn't miss the point because that was never explained to you. Yeah, he was a helpless victim who got brutalized. Well, so what is the meaning of his death? Why did he come? Well, Luke tells us, Luke chapter 19. Actually, these are in Jesus' own words. And he's talking about salvation. And he's talking about saving an individual, pathetic, wicked sinner named Zacchaeus, who was despised in his culture. And Zacchaeus comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus' response to this whole thing of personal salvation coming to a sinful man in his home one day, Jesus' conclusion was in verse 9 of Luke 19, and Jesus said to him today, salvation has come to this home. Zacchaeus, you have been saved. And this is on a personal, individual, intimate le- uh, level. This man came to know Jesus Christ personally that day. And Jesus' commentary is that today's salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And here's the purpose statement, verse 10. For the Son of Man, Jesus is talking about himself, has come into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. Why did Jesus come down here to earth? To seek and to save lost sinners. That's why he came. One more from 1 Timothy. This is the Apostle Paul himself. As Paul was thinking about the grace of God, reflecting on his own uh, receiving of the grace of God, and in 1 Timothy chapter 1, listen to this. The Apostle Paul just says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, the Apostle Paul, because God condes- uh, considered me faithful, putting me into Christian service or ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer. That was, those were his credentials. And a persecutor of the church. The Apostle Paul persecuted Christians, beat them up, arrested them, threw them in prison. He wanted to kill them. And I was a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and unbelief. And here it is. And the grace of our Lord was was abundant towards me and with faith and love, which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why Jesus came into the world. And Paul says, among whom I am for most of all. I am the chief sinner. That is awesome. That's all that just to say, when Paul's talking about you have been saved, he's talking about salvation from sin. And as a result, and because we've been saved from our sin, we have also been saved from the consequences of sin. The greatest consequence of sin is God's wrath. That's what the Bible says, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 5, 9 reminds us, because we are Christians, we have been saved from God's wrath. Before we got saved, God's anger was pressing down upon us. After we got saved, God's anger is not coming down upon us anymore. We have been forgiven from God's wrath. In this life, He's not angry with us. And also in the next life, we won't suffer God's wrath. We won't be condemned in hell. We won't be punished for our sins in the next life. We've been saved from that. That is awesome. One thing I want to say about this phrase, by grace you have been saved, you have been saved, is the English translation, four words to translate one one Greek word. You have been saved. And the word is very specific and it's very important. And it is, in, it is a perfect passive participle. And if you forgot your grammar from sixth grade, that's okay. But just a couple of things to remember, it's a perfect passive participle. You have been saved. The fact that it is passive voice means that we, the recipients, we are passive in the action and that somebody else was acting upon us. And here it's saying that God was the initiator, He was acting upon us, He saved us, we did not save ourselves. We are the recipients of salvation and of His grace. That's what passive means emphasizing, once again, you didn't save yourself. I didn't save myself. Adam didn't save himself. What did Adam do when he sinned? Go out to God and say, God forgive me. No, he was hiding in the bushes. That's what sinners do. We're not running to God. We're running from God. So God has to take the initiative. Go out and seek sinners. That's why Jesus came. So passive, emphasizing, once again, God takes the initiative in salvation. It is a perfect passive participle. Perfect tense. Very specific. Very important. Perfect tense refers to a past completed action with ongoing present results. God saved you, perfect tense. That means that God saved us in a completed way at some point in the past, and it's referring to personal salvation. The very moment in time when you got saved, when you became a Christian, that was a past completed action. It was a closed deal. You did business with God. You asked Jesus Christ into your heart to forgive you of your sin. You meant it sincerely. You knew what you were saying and because of your faith and God knows your heart at that moment in time, He saved you. It was a complete done deal. All of your sins forgiven, past, present, future. He saved you. That's why it's a legitimate question to ask somebody, when did you become a Christian? When did you get saved? I did that to somebody one time and they got angry at me because they thought it was an unfair question. It was illegitimate. It was arrogant. And nobody can know when they got saved. How can anybody know that? And this was a very religious person who thought they knew God and they were offended by the very question. When did you get saved? Because the perfect tense is telling us it was a past completed action that happened in the past when you got saved. Past completed action with ongoing results. It's kind of like, okay, you take an umbrella and you open it up. You open it up one time. It's a complete deal. There's the umbrella. But ongoing results we're still standing under the umbrella and receiving the benefits of the umbrella even though the past completed action is already done and the ongoing benefits are is that i'm not getting rain on my head and i am being protected by the umbrella that is the perfect tense in the greek language past completed action with ongoing results and paul is saying even though you got saved in the past you still have ongoing benefits and results from being saved as a christian That is awesome. We are continually saved uh, by God's grace. We are continually saved from His wrath. He continues to save us and help us as a result of that past completed action when we first gave our life to Jesus Christ at some point in the past. So that is awesome, and that is biblical salvation. So the basis of salvation is God's grace. Go on to number two. The means of salvation is faith. Faith. By the way, this is the first time in Paul's explanation of salvation for a chapter and a half where he emphasizes the human perspective or the human element in salvation. Up to this point, it's just all of God. God's doing everything. But the emphasis here is that we are literally involved in the salvation process, and we exercise faith, because he goes on to say, for by grace you have been saved, very important, he says, through faith. Through faith. It was your personal faith that you put in Jesus Christ, which God used to save you. Personal faith. What does faith mean? It means to believe in, to have confidence in, to trust in, to trust in a person. And that's what we did when you put your faith in something. What it, and you have to put your faith in something, by the way. And the biblical definition regarding faith is belief, trust, confidence, but it also involves the intellect and the will. Faith comes as a result of information and intake of particular data. That's why the Bible says in Romans 10, Uh, Verse 17, that faith comes by hearing, and that's hearing the Word of God. How do you grow in your faith? By hearing the Word of God, by hearing biblical truth. How does a person become Christian and exercise saving faith? Well, they have to hear biblical information first, and primarily they have to hear the gospel, the content of the gospel. You cannot be saved apart from hearing the content of the gospel and the message about Christ. That's why we have to preach to people and tell people and teach them about Jesus and give them prerequisite information. You cannot be saved without it. You need truth in order to have true faith. You have, you have to have something to believe in. So that is biblical faith. So biblical faith is not, the emphasis isn't on what you do, it is on what you think. That's why the Apostle Paul gives us the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 and he says this is the gospel that saved you if you believed and then he tells us the content of what we needed to believe. It all had to do with Christ, who he was, that he died for sin and that he rose again from the dead. So you have to believe the truth in order to be saved. So faith has to do with how we think and how we process truth and how we then respond to the truth and put our confidence and trust in the truth. By the way, faith is not a human work. Some people say that. But faith is actually a gift of God, and that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, By grace you have been saved through faith. Important phrase there. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Well, the word that, what is that referring back to? It's a gift of God. That that refers back either to saved or to grace or the whole act of salvation. And actually, it's the whole thing. It refers to the whole thing regarding salvation. Grace was a gift from God. Your faith was a gift from God. So my faith was a gift from God. It's not a human work, but it's still my faith. It really came from me. It issued from me. The Holy Spirit began working on my heart, convicting me of the truth, working in me. Taking in biblical truth, biblical data, assimilating that into my worldview. And at some point I exercised real personal faith in the gospel and I became a Christian. So it is through faith. And by the way, the New Testament, the book of Galatians, the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul makes a distinction. He contrasts faith with what? Works. Because the, the world tells us salvation is through works, human effort. No, it's not. It is through faith. And it is faith, which is the gift that God gives you that comes from biblical truth and biblical knowledge and confidence in the gospel and the saving message. So salvation comes through faith. Very important. So by grace we have been saved. It is through faith. Look at number three. What is the antagonist to salvation? Well, it's human works. Paul makes that clear. And that's his argument, for, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that it's not of yourselves. You didn't save yourself. You didn't conjure up your own faith, by the way. It's none of your good works. It's not because you go to church. It's not because you got baptized. It's not because you're religious. It's not because you're good. It's not because you chose Christ in eternity past or that God looked down the corridors of time in eternity past and saw, oh, there's a good person. It didn't happen that way. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with human works. That not of yourselves, it is strictly the gift of God. Verse 9, he says, it is not as a result of human works, whether works of the law for the Jew or just human effort from the Gentile. It is not of human works. And that is the basis of world religion. Everything, I don't care what name you give to it. Hinduism, Buddhism, all the Eastern religions, even in our American religions and everything else, one of the common denominators is the way to appease God and get to know Him is through human effort, human works. That is human achievement. The Bible says no. It is divine accomplishment, what God did on our behalf, not what we do for Him. So it is not through works. By the way, if salvation could be achieved through our good works, then it robs God of His glory, doesn't it? Because He's the Savior. Then, we, If we could save ourselves through our own works, then we could take the glory and rob it from Him. And boast about how we saved ourselves. And God says, no, you can't do that. That's impossible. He is the only one. He is the only Savior. Isaiah said, there is no other Savior. God and God alone is the Savior. And if you're boasting about how you saved yourself through your good works, you're robbing God of His glory. So that is the antagonist to salvation, human works. So in your discern, the Bible calls us to be discerning as Christians, and when you hear some new religion or some religion you don't know about coming down the pike or you're having a conversation with somebody and you don't know where they are spiritually, a litmus test that you can use right off the bat is asking them the question, how can a person be saved? And listen to what they say. And if there's any inkling of human works, then you know, oh man, they don't understand the gospel. And this is very important when you're working with children too. When children say, I want to be baptized, and I've interviewed many, 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 many children over the years for baptism, and this is a basic question. This is like the top three questions I ask. How does a person get saved? How did you get saved? And if there's any human effort involved, then I realize this child does not understand the gospel. Uh, Because if I get baptized, I'll get forgiven of my sins. Because I grew up and was born in the church. Because my parents are Christians. Because I'm a good person. Because I obey the Ten Commandments. No, 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 the emphasis is all all wrong. And that is a way to discern truth regarding the gospel. It is not of human works whatsoever. Let's go on to number four. We've hinted at that, and that is who is the author of salvation? It's God alone. God and God alone. He is the only one that deserves the glory. Paul emphasizes this in verse 10. He goes on to say, For by grace you've been saved, it is through faith, it is the gift of God, it's not of your works. And then in verse 10 he says, For we are God's workmanship. Regarding Christians, we didn't save ourselves. As a result, actually we are just His workmanship. And the word workmanship is the word poema, where we get the word poem. And it means a masterpiece. It is something crafted by somebody else. We didn't save ourselves. Because God is the craftsman. He is the artist. He is the artisan. We're simply a byproduct of His handiwork. That's all. God is the potter. We are the clay, right? So the emphasis there is God is the author of salvation. He did it all. He saved us. He created us. He saved us for a purpose and He saved us for a good purpose. He calls us, this is a blessed term, for we are His workmanship. We are His masterpiece. We are His living poem, poetry in motion, that's what God thinks of us. We are no longer filthy rags. We are a, a trophy in God's trophy case for all eternity. That is a great blessing and a great truth to think about for the Christian. All that's just to say, Paul's emphasizing, oh, you didn't save yourself, you're just a work of art. You come from the hand of the great almighty potter. And that is God. You are his workmanship. Then he goes on to emphasize that saying, and you were created in Christ Jesus. The only reason you have salvation is because you... We're saved by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is in Christ Jesus. Is the work of Christ. It is because of who He is and the work He did on the cross. By dying on the cross, willingly getting punished for the sins of the world and overcoming sin by rising from the dead. And He offered Himself as the Lord and Savior of the world. And if you believe in that, that is how God saves you. It all has to do with Jesus Christ. It all originates with God, not with us. We are simply the creation. And beneficiaries... Of His grace, God is the author of salvation. That is awesome. Number five, what is the purpose of salvation? Well, there's many purposes. The ultimate purpose is that we would glorify God, right? But there's also a practical purpose in salvation. Because well, how do we glorify God? I want to glorify God as a Christian, but how can I practically do that from day to day and all throughout my life? Well, that's where this verse is very helpful. This is a practical purpose of why God saved us and that's the rest of verse 10. Here's the purpose. For we are His workmanship. We are God's masterpieces created in Christ Jesus when we got saved. And here's the purpose. For good works. Why are you here on earth as a Christian? Well, one of the main reasons that you should say, that I should say, is I am here to do good works. So now we've been talking about works the whole time. We've been talking about negative works, that works don't save us. Even good philanthropic works can't save you and earn forgiveness of God but there is a place of good works in the life of a human being and here's, here's the legitimate place for it Paul says right here yeah Christian you have been called to do good works but in the proper place you've been saved to do good works all that just to say good works don't save you you can't become a Christian you don't do good works to become a Christian you do good works because you are a Christian right? It's kind of like you don't, be, you don't bark to become a dog you bark because you are a dog so that's the distinction between the two viewpoints of salvation, human achievement and divine accomplishment. We Good works have a place in the life of a Christian, but it's the overflow and the byproduct of our salvation is those good works. What about these good works? What are these good works? I'm going to propose that the good works he's talking about specifically are chapters 4, 5, and 6 in Ephesians. He's going to talk about the kind of good works that we need to be involved in as Christians. We're going to see that in detail. What good works should I be busy about? Uh, We're going to have three chapters of good works that we should be pursuing in our life and they affect every area of life. What about these good works? Also, God prepared these good works beforehand. That literally means that before the foundation of the world, when God elected us, predestined us, put His love and affection upon us and determined to save us before the foundation of the world, He also, before the foundation of the world, determined the good works that He would have us do in this life. That is unbelievable. That is amazing. And I cannot fathom that. That is a mystery of God. All that just to say, it was God's purpose and plan Before the foundation of the world That every person that got saved in this life Would then as a result Do good works in their Christian life All that just to say the Bible is clear If you are truly a Christian Then there is going to be good works As evidence in your life That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 That you could judge, diagnose and assess False teachers and people who aren't believers And how do you assess and judge them It is based on the fruit of their life And he was talking about their actions And their words it's the tangible things that you can see. Just before that, he said, Judge ye not, lest ye be judged. He was talking about the motives of the heart. We can't do that because we can't read people's minds. But he did go on to say, Judge the fruits of their life, their actions and their words. Very explicit. And he goes on to say that a, basically a, a wicked tree cannot produce good fruit. And a good tree won't always produce bad fruit. And he was talking about two different people, a believer and an unbeliever. And so Jesus was saying, a Christian is going to produce good fruit in their life. There are Christians and Bible teachers around today and who have been saying for years that it is possible to become a Christian and live the next 40 years of your life and never produce one good fruit in your life. I'm thinking, uh, you must be reading a different New Testament. That just is not true. Because when you become a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit come to live inside of you and it is the Holy Spirit of God working in us He is the one that helps produce the good works in our life. And these are called the fruits of the Spirit. So if you've got the Holy Spirit in you, if you're a Christian, you've got the Holy Spirit in you. And if you've got the Holy Spirit in you, He is going to help you. He's going to make you produce some good works. And if He has to chasten and discipline you and me, He will. So a Christian will inevitably, in some measure, produce good fruits. And then regarding those fruits, when we get to the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, we will be judged for our works that we did on earth, in ministry to Christ. And God and the Lord Jesus Christ will evaluate our fruits. Are these good works or are they uh, not good works? Oh, you did it with the wrong motive. Oh, you did the wrong thing. And that's where the Lord Jesus will sift it all out. And whatever good works remain, we as Christians will be rewarded for those good works. Like I said, that's like at the Olympic ceremony. And that's what's going to happen at the Bema seat or the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be held accountable for the good works, the giftedness that He has given us in this lifetime to serve Him, ultimately to bring Him the glory. So, that is the purpose of salvation, is good works in honoring God. And every Christian is given the Holy Spirit to help make that happen. And by the way, the priority of a local church, the priority of the leadership of a church, the priority and job description of a pastor in a church, and the elders in the church, according to Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and we're going to read this, is they are supposed to equip the saints in the church to do the work of the ministry, to do good work. So part of the onus on helping Christians practically learn how to produce good fruits in their life falls back on the responsibility of the pastors and the elders because that is their job, priority number one, and that comes from the guidelines of the Bible. So my prayer is that we can do that faithfully as a leadership, teaching the saints, all the believers, to do the good works of the ministry so that you will be fulfilled in this lifetime, honoring God wherever you go, and ultimately bringing glory to God, both now and the next life. Well, let's go ahead and pray and thank God for His great, gracious gift of salvation and even empowering us to do all of these things. Father, we thank You for today. I thank You... For your word. God, thank you for this letter from the Apostle Paul. Just a great reminder of the greatness of salvation. And even today, our part in salvation, and that is the faith we put in you and in your promises that comes from the truth of the Bible. God, help us to faithfully serve you with good works, with the right motive, empowered by the Holy Spirit, doing it according to your word. God, make this church, Grace Bible Fellowship, a church known for its good works, for pleasing you in all things. God, and if there's anybody here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ personally, that you would use some of these truths, the gospel, to penetrate their heart, to fill their mind with truth so that they know that they can have forgiveness of sin, a personal relationship with you, and even spend an eternity in heaven because of Jesus' death and resurrection and coming into their lives. So God, just keep working on their hearts through your Holy Spirit. We commit them to you. We thank you for our time in Christ's name, amen.